0: to Season 6 of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across oceans, and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a brewery.
1: There were times when the sales weren't great and we were pushing would chat with people about it and they'd say, but the beer is so good. Yeah. It has to kind of work. And I wanted to believe that. In 2023, the Australian beer market was shocked by the
0: announcement that a beloved brewery that had been awarded close to 40 medals for their beer was shutting down. After nine years blazing the path of Australia's craft beer scene, Exit Brewing was planning to exit the brewing industry. Somewhere around 2010, Grum and Fraze had been inspired to start a brewery after spending time in Europe immersed in their craft beer culture. Four years later, they released their first beer, a saison. As their company grew, they expanded to an off-site taproom, followed by national and then international distribution. But like most of us, they couldn't seem to find whatever rock profitability was hiding under. They tried rebrands, new beers, new partnerships, Fraze even left to get a real job. So I sat down with Grum to find out what happened, what went wrong, and what the future of the Australian craft beer scene looks like. Hint, Grum exited. So open your minds and ears and listen to the story of Craig Grum Knight and Melbourne, Australia's Exit Brewing. All right, Grum, welcome to the show. I want to thank you for taking the time, um, staying up late, as it were, in Australia so I can get up early here in the States and we can meet in the middle and talk about your career in beer um, up to this point, at least. And then we'll talk about kind of what's coming next. But anyways, I appreciate you taking some time today.
1: Excellent work, Kelly. It's great to meet you. And I'm looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, I'm
0: going to have some fun with it. So uh, we got a lot to cover. There's a whole story there. And I I know very little about the Australian beer market other than what Hendo has schooled me thus far. So we're going to get through that. But first, I want to kind of hear how you got started. I know you were not always in beer, but um, even before that, like, who were you?
1: General background history is um, I I worked in IT. So I got a math computer science degree, got a job in IT, worked in IT for 20 odd years. And then for a few years, I'd been thinking of doing something other than computer work, just as something I'd enjoy more. And I didn't want to end up just doing something that, um, ended up I didn't like and just paid less money so I looked at my hobbies and passions and um, at the time we're living in the UK and doing a lot of beer t- tourism and did, did really enjoy beer so basically started home brewing with the idea of going commercial spent sort of probably three years from doing an initial goo kit to did, I did we did two of those and then got onto all um, grain and yeah upgraded system times ended up moving to ireland with my wife who's from ireland so she could be home for a year so spent that year brewing training and reading uh, and then moved back to melbourne and started off a little brewery which seemed like a great idea at the time
0: (laughs) well so with your home brewing everyone has a different approach did you make the same beer try to dial in that specific style or were you really trying to learn the gamut of belgium irish UK beers, like just what, what was your strategy as a home brewer planning to go pro?
1: I did both. So yeah, started off, yeah, we had, because we're doing beer tourism, a lot of the uh, travels we did were to Belgium. So that kind of became, that was a, an interest of ours. So we did quite a few of those, but we do a lot of like American IPAs, Hoppy Ambers, yeah, Stouts. Being an island you've got to do some Stouts. So yeah, but also Saisons, Belgian Doubles. Usually the things that we enjoyed brewing were the ones we were drawn to, to brew and um, yeah, once 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 we brewed it once, we always looked at it and said, Well, we can probably make it a bit better. So, you do it again and dial it in. So, yeah, a little bit of both. So, okay. And I guess having the year off and being, being able to homebrew basically full time, I got, you know, rather than a lot of homebrews will brew, you know, once or twice a month, whereas I was able to brew once or twice a week and yeah got a lot more practice in that way so
0: did you kind of when you came back did you have a direction like a kind of a business model already designed or was it focused primarily on the beer and then kind of ran from there
1: um yeah it was very much focused on the beer so basically spent all my time learning how to brew a beer and didn't really focus on a lot of things when you are uh, starting business that you should like a business model like the marketing plan like all kinds of things like that so yeah it was very much focused on beer and then work out where and how to make it and yeah, so that was that was the end of our planning, whereas it probably should have been the start of our planning. But hey, you learn a lot in hindsight doing these things. So probably, we probably should have started off with a, a business plan and marketing, and then after that worked out which beers to make. But.
0: Well, you're definitely not alone. I mean, I had a plan, but my brewery was definitely a uh, just labor of love and passion. And, and, and I think that's what made the industry exciting and fun for a long time. Um, unfortunately, especially in the States, I think that when we had 1500 to 2500 breweries that can still work, but with 10,000, you're just that you're in deep shit. Like, it, and I don't know if there is a profitable model, mm-hmm. but without having a tight model with managing the margins, um, with that much competition, yeah, it's just, the, the, we're, we're all fucked. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's what, what, what we found out in the last year is there was a couple of medium to larger breweries that had basically been selling at a loss for the last couple of years. They so they went into administration. They like eight million dollars and like that. A, a, a company their size is selling at a loss. well yeah, uh, what what what's our chance to compete on an even playing surface? So.
0: Okay, so in this startup, you somehow met a founder or a co-founder. Sorry, like uh, what what was the how did this whole thing come about with the actual opening of the brewery?
1: Uh, so yeah, I was I was working with a friend Fraser, and that was yeah. I was we sort of sat and plotted over coffee about. The, this idea to get out of IT and and open a brewery. So, yeah, it was sort of, yeah, he moved back to, we sort of finished up our job in the UK at a similar time. He finished a bit earlier, went to Belgium for a little bit, hung out there and lived the beer life. Uh, then he came back to, to Melbourne and started looking around for options, and then I came back and we had a friend who had a factory who was happy to rent space out to us in that. And it was that was a very small setup. It was going to be very basic. It was going to be sort of a hundred liter system just to get some beer into the market and get some feedback. But yeah, it proved that council and liquor licensing was uh, extremely difficult, even at that level. Um, we basically yeah, took a couple of months to be told that they didn't like the idea and. There wasn't enough parking for us to sell <laughs> two kegs a month and yeah all kinds of stupid stuff like that so um yeah we ended up fraser was talking to some friends who found out through uh, another contact that there was uh, one of the an existing brewery called cavalier brewing who basically set up with uh, a brew, brew system and 12 tanks and well they didn't they had space for 12 tanks and i was sort of selling tanks to people who would want to buy them so we got the option to buy a single 3000 litre fermenter in there and that was sort of how we started the process of getting some beer into the market
0: back up a little bit so you you guys had considered doing a small kind of like basically a nano brewery and then figured out quickly that those numbers weren't going to make sense and that you weren't able to really do a tasting room there and so you decided to go contract
1: yeah yeah, the nano the nano was um yeah it was sort of a stepping stone of like just basically get beer out as quickly as we could we already had a system we could use to do it and then once we got all the licensing through then we're going to start expanding the size, but yeah, the, the licensing became uh, more painful than it was worth. Um, and yeah, so the the deal with Cavalier as well was um, they provided the equipment, but they allowed us to brew our own beer. Sort of a, a strange model you don't see very often, but uh, it's, they uh, allow you to um, go in and brew your own rather than just contract it which is what we wanted to do.
0: Yeah, you've seen a lot more people experiment with that. I I interviewed uh, Lost Abbey in San Diego, and he's doing an alternating proprietorship is kind of how we term that here. There's a bunch of other breweries I've talked to that did it. There's a conglomerate that did it for less than a year, I think, in Portland before they had to shut down. In your neck of the woods, Hendo kind of did something similar, and he found out later that his his numbers didn't work. But it's a way easier way to get started. I think it allows you to kind of proof of concept it allows you to go deeper without having this humongous overhead of the physical plant the brewery the staff all that but so who's doing the brewing at this time you guys get to go to cavalier produce your own beer you own a fermenter basically did you brew or was it Mm -hmm. your your co-founder
1: yeah i brewed and yeah hendo was at the same place
0: right i I thought it was
1: yeah he started the year before but um yeah he uh yeah, it was growing out of the same place. There was, I think it was the only one doing it in Melbourne. There might have been somewhere up north in the country that we may be able to brew. But yeah, it's the only one I've heard of in Australia that allowed you to do it. So there's a whole bunch of small breweries start up out of there at the same time. Yeah. Good way to meet good people, meet some people in the industry.
0: Yeah. So how did you go to market at that point? So, you know, in the States at that time, there were, everyone sort of thought you had to have a tasting room. You had to have this authenticity. Uh, I think we have learned... Absolutely, that that's complete bullshit, and the consumers don't care. But at that point, you're you're a kind of hybrid contracting model. You've got to go wide to be able to you know make kind of the not not just money, but to get the attention and, and kind of build your business. Did you have distributors? Did you do it yourself? How were you getting the beer from the brewery to the consumer?
1: Uh, yeah, initially we did it all ourselves. So yeah, literally, well, we had a 3PL, so they stored and would deliver the beer. But yeah, we just we drove around and gave out samples and did sales and pretty much did everything for the first year and a bit I guess and I guess it was it was a fairly small scene then so there weren't that many pubs selling craft beer so yeah you go to all the popular ones and drop your name and yeah give them a taste and hope they liked it so yeah and early on it was yeah because there weren't a thousand breweries offering beers it was it was probably probably in a lot of ways easier you'd drop off a sample and you'd, you'd have a fair chance of them tasting them but you talk to um in the last couple of years you'd talk to staff at bottle shops, and I say, oh, we've had, you know, 23 samples dropped off already this morning, <laughs> so we don't even know if we're going to get through them, let alone, yeah, it would be very hard starting up now.
0: Yeah, so what were you selling against then? And, and I, I, This was 13, 14, or when, when was this?
1: This would have been 14, yeah.
0: Okay, so what was that market like? I mean, here in the States in 2013, we're still kind of basically going up against the mega brewers and some of the regional guys, but, you know, we weren't taking down a lot of Sierra Nevada handles so much as we were looking for those little light ones, which uh you know, now doesn't seem to have worked very well. But um who was your big competition? Who were you guys targeting?
1: Well, in um in Australia the the big guys, um you see your bees and your lines have basically got tap contracts. So you can't you can't take them on. They've got it locked up. So it was just yeah, you find in, in, it was independent pubs that were that would have several taps available. And it was always a rotational thing, so you just hope they liked your beer and try and get your keg in there, and it was usually a would be you'd sell a couple couple of kegs to them, and then they'd move on to something else, and then hopefully they'd come back to you at some point. And for the first that first couple of years, we basically did one-off brews. We did a saison to start with, then we did a scotch ale, um, then we did a milk stout, then we did an IPA. So we you know, did uh, amber. So we did yeah, we did a session of all these individual one beers It was kind of a, an easy way to make the sale because the the initial beers were decent. You know, the people enjoyed them and they sold. So they go, I oh, yeah something. It's still to this day. So they go, what's what's new so you're more likely to hear from someone looking to buy a beer what's new rather than what's good so having a new beer every month was a good way to do it
0: yeah well i think it sounds like you were kind of competing against you know again these contract things and so the only way to really almost do that you can't come in and make a better pilsner with a better marketing plan and spend with the money so that we saw the same thing here for us it's kind of died the consumer no longer really gives a shit about what's new although that's still what you sell at the retail or the distribution tier. But even the distributors are tired of it. They're just like, well, we want three core SKUs and then I don't want to hear about your other bullshit for the most part.
1: Yeah, it's it came back that way to some extent over the past couple of years, but there's still a lot of new new stuff coming out. And yeah, a lot of the new stuff often isn't great. Someone comes up with a crazy idea to just be crazy and then they just brew it up. And yeah, there's not a lot of recipe, recipe development. It's just make it crazy and make it taste like something weird. So, yeah,
0: have you guys had anybody in Australia put pizza in a beer?
1: Mm, not that I not that I've heard of, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, we have. Um, <laughs> I know that I, I, I know there's been donuts and cereal and yeah biscuits and Vegemite and all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about that saison a little bit. That's that was your first initial beer. I read the recipe for it. It sounds amazing. How was it received, and how did you conceive doing it?
1: Um, it was actually received really well. That was the beer that uh, you were asking before about the recipe recipe development. And the, the Saison, we decided that Saison should suit the Australian climate. So we decided early on that we would release one. So that was the beer I probably brewed the most times to try and dial it in. And also the yeast variable, I guess there was a lot of trial and error on that. The, one, the strains, and two, then the temperature you ferment at. So as opposed with a lot of yeast, you sort of dial it in and go, right, that's that's optimal for that kind of beer. With, um, with Saisons, it changes the character that much that... You play around with it, so yeah, ended up doing a very warm ferment to get plenty of esters and flavor into it, and yeah, it was it went down really well. And yeah, didn't um salespeople really liked it, and the beer fans loved it, but the the style never really caught on in Australia, and it still hasn't really. There's still only a very small percentage of the market that will actually go and oh saison, let's drink one of those. So yeah, it was never a great seller.
0: It isn't that different in the states either. People people who know beer respect the saison, but the saison never really does any volume, and actually, we lost kind of a Saison-specialized brewery, not just mixed culture, but largely mixed culture. One of the East Coast really big breweries just went out of business about a month ago, and they just sort of said the same thing, like, well, no one gives a fuck about our beer anymore. <laughs> it, it sucks, but that's the reality. Like, that style never caught on here, really, outside of just... People, again, anecdotally like it, but they're not lining up to purchase it. So, mm-hmm. so during yeah. that period... Yeah. I know you guys moved into another facility later, but during that period, did you really try to do cores at all? It was just one-offs and, and seasonal stuff, and that that's oh, really what you built your
1: business with? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty much just one. I only had one tank. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Right. We, we didn't feel it was viable to do a core range. So it's like, yeah, we, yeah, you rotate it through something, so having a core range, people are going to expect you to have it in stock, at least most of the time, and we're pretty much going through and producing a beer and selling most of it in that month, and then getting another beer out and selling that. So yeah, that, that was probably, probably worked well for us for that period of time.
0: Okay. And at this point, do you, do you remember at all and how many breweries there were in Australia?
1: Uh, around 220, I think. Okay.
0: And, and that was part of your, it was sounds like anyways, what part of your idea was that there's only 220 breweries we can differentiate ourselves and we'll run and foreshadowing. Obviously there have been quite a bit more that have opened since then and has changed that game. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah.
0: So what did the distribution look like? Where, were you guys just in your local market nearby to Cavalier? Did you, were you able to expand from there? How, how did that look?
1: Yeah, mostly um, focused in and around Melbourne. There's a couple of regional hubs, like um, particularly Bendigo's, a little city just north of Melbourne, an hour and a half away. So yeah, a bit, bit of the regional cities, but yeah, mostly Mostly just in around Melbourne to start with. It took us a while, and then we we picked up uh, an interstate rep who was just a commission-based guy in New South Wales, uh, and then we actually got a distributor in Queensland not long after, just through just through contact through um, festivals and things like that. They they took on our beer and uh, expanded up the east coast. So we yeah, were selling up up and down the east coast of Australia. So that was working pretty well.
0: Okay. Well, let's dig into that. I'm going to take a quick break and when we come back, I want to hear how that distributor relationship worked and how it helped grow your business. And then I know you made some changes to to the model later. So I'm curious to hear how that turns out. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: All
0: right, welcome back. So again, I want to get back into the distribution piece. But one thing really quickly to back up on is kind of the branding and the the color scheme, the names, all that kind of thing, is definitely an area that most breweries struggle with in the beginning and tend to change multiple times throughout before they finally get to the point that they've got a cohesive branding message. I looked at your cans on your site. Overall, every can kind of resembled each other. There was a cool, kind of crisp look to it. I gotta think you probably didn't start with that in twenty fourteen. But what what was it like then? And How did you figure that part out?
1: No, so the name was always the same. So. Fraser had always said he didn't want didn't want a region in the name. He said there was enough breweries with dog in it, so he didn't want a dog name. <laughs> <laughs> he pretty much wanted what he'd, he'd prefer one word. So and I was just thinking about it, and uh, I came up with um, Exit because we're XIT. That was sort of the – and then I figured we could use the, the Exit sort of logo, like uh, the font and the Exit man you see on all the signs and stuff like that, and try and make that recognizable. So yeah, that was the, that was the initial thought. Um, the initial branding was extremely plain. It was basically we had a favourite little brewer, um, brewery in London who they just basically had brown paper bag looking labels with just um, plain writing on them. So yeah, we kind of it was it was slightly different, but we went with the the, the brown labels and brown boxes, and then the green green exit logo to look a bit like a, an exit sign. And that was the plain start to it. And yeah, over the over the years we did go through two major rebrands. One when we went to Cairns and we got a, a sort of re, sort of a retro techno find a look, which we, we quite liked, but um, we got a lot of feedback saying people didn't like them, people wouldn't buy them, so not hmm. too masculine. So, yeah, then we went through our final design phase where we got a, a proper design um, person in and went through that process of getting something that would appeal to people and have that cohesion and things like that, so okay. definitely a process. And, again, should have been something done in, in first up to go, right, let's get some branding, and that should have been before we released any beer, but we yeah. can learn for the next uh, next adventure. Well, I
0: did the same thing. I had somebody quote me like five grand and do all the graphic design and give me a cohesive message. And I was like, that's just really expensive. I I got Illustrator on my computer. I'll just do it myself. I should have done that. (laughs) I should pay for
1: it. So we all learn. Well, we, got the initial, we got the initial branding We got the initial branding off 99 designs, so I think we paid someone 50 bucks to come up with it.
0: Which uh, is pretty standard. That's how we all go. But at the end of the day, you didn't make money on your beer in the first few years probably, so you got to cut corners wherever you can, right?
1: That's right, yeah. Yeah, I, I, and early on when there wasn't a 1,000 beers on the shelf, so that, that's become a thing now that sort of over the years, um, I went from, well, I was still at Bottles back then, so you go to a shop and I might have you know, 20, 30 different bottles of beer and people were coming up basically look at all of them and i did want something that was recognizable so each beer looks basically the same and people go i I had one like that last week and i really liked it so i'll get that one as well um but yeah then it came in now everything's everything was multicolored and bright and 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 there was hundreds if not thousands of beers available so yeah you just you didn't get it you didn't even get seen if you weren't sticking out well enough so had to change competition changed
0: the market dramatically for sure But so at this point, when you first started uh, distributing, let's talk about the distributor in Queensland. How did that relationship work? Like In the States, there's a whole bunch of different, and everybody hates distributors, but uh, there's a whole bunch of different reasons you do or don't use a distributor and a whole bunch of contract issues that you run into. But how did that work with them? Was it, is it just cost plus? Here they make about 30% on what they sell and then they run it through everywhere for you. And most people think you drop it at FOB at their dock and then you never talked about it again. And then turns out you know a year later that if you're not in the market three times a week selling it yourself it doesn't get sold anyways what's it like there for or what was it like for you guys
1: uh the our queensland guy was pretty good actually we'd sell him beer at 20 percent off uh wholesale and he would then do everything so he'd store it he'd cold store it he'd sell it he had a couple of sales guys running around we'd go up and do an event or two a year just to and send up some merch and stuff like that. But um, yeah, he was good. He, um, he sold decent volume. We've had other distributors around the it was more like you send them a beer and they complain it didn't sell itself.
0: <laughs> That's pretty normal for here, at least at least with competition too. But. So how long did you run with the one tank?
1: That was, was probably about two years. And then yeah, one of the other breweries who were in Cavalier as well called Kaiju, they um, were having a chat and they said, oh look, we're looking at expanding out. Um, they had two tanks and they couldn't produce anywhere near as much beer as they needed. So they said, look, we're going to look at um, starting another brewery. Would you like to go in um, partnership with us? And they set up you know, just a, a two-person brewery and yeah, run with it. And so yeah, timing-wise was perfect, and we liked the guys. So yeah, we jumped on that, and yeah, they um, they had some plans already drawn up. So we uh, yeah joined them there, and I and that was it was actually a lot closer to where I live, the same side of the city. So that was also handy that I didn't have to commute so far. So yeah, we basically set all that up, built the brewery, started off with five. Five thousand liter tank, and then expanded into some more seven and a half thousands, and a two and a half thousand liter brew house. So yes, yeah, basically worked in there, and yeah, ended up brewing, brewing a lot of beer in there. Brewed all of our beer, and a lot of their beer as well when um when they needed me to. So yeah, it was a good good experience for a couple of years being a, being a, a proper brewer.
0: <laughs> so from a uh, startup idea, and, and again we're trying to p- pay forward what we've learned to the next generation. How did that look? Was it like a true partnership where each of you brought your own capital or loan to split it in half? Did you, uh, did, I, I guess I'm completely curious. Was it they, they owned it and you bought tanks within it or how did that, how did the financial piece work?
1: Yeah, they had a larger percentage, but we, yeah, it sort of started off 60 40, which meant that we you got two tanks, they got three tanks, but it was never like you own a tank. It was just tank space. And, and so, yeah, and all the, the brew house and equipment and packaging everything was just sort of costs. Yeah. We, we put up some capital and, and there was a split on on rent and everything, so we worked out pretty quickly that I was selling quite a lot more beer than we were, so it dropped to being eighty twenty. But yeah, okay, it was um, yeah, it worked well.
0: So it's kind of a, it's a very non standard business model, but seems to make a lot of sense in my opinion. Even even potentially to do three or four breweries split within the whole thing. But what were what were the wins in that model? How how did you looking back be like? No, this this was great to have done it that way, and here's why.
1: Just um, we yeah, we wouldn't have had the capital to have a brewery anywhere near that size or space and the thing is it's it's much more efficient to brew you know, you know one, one big batch rather than buying a thousand liter system and having to brew twice a day all the time so yeah just the size of and the bottling machine as well as you know, a couple hundred grand in bottling machine that you only use at most a couple of times a week even when you're busy for the amount we we're putting out so you've got all this equipment you paid for so it's just the economy of scale that you get to use bigger and better things and as they expand as well you know you'd say well this needs to be automated so you know more more equipment would get bought and it'll just make the whole process easier so yeah it's incredible how much money you can spend on a brewery and to upgrade packaging machines and things like that is incredibly expensive so yeah and coming from the initial brewery where it was um a four-head manual bottling machine that you literally put the bottles in and then pushed it like pushed a button and it filled, and then the caps in manually and they drop down and yeah it's having an automated machine that you put a bottle on one end and a full, full beer comes out the other end of the cap on it so yeah it was a big upgrade especially
0: if you're trying to do any volume whatsoever you just yeah you have to have that automation which then you have to know have somebody mm. that understands the automation and it's able to fix that we though i had a Mahine six head and it from the time i had it year and a half later I learned a hell of a lot of how to use it, but there's still a bunch of shit I didn't know about it. That just it takes a long time to learn that crap.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was going through the same thing and as being your business is sort well, if it's not working, you can't just say, Oh, it's not working, I'll go home now. So yeah, it's it's either fix it or throw the beer out some days so you work something up
0: yeah especially when you've got distributors that are asking for you know specific amounts of product you've got to produce it on a certain day because that's when the truck's coming yeah you, you figure it out pretty quickly mm-hmm. how to make it work so well during this period with the like, obviously now you're moving into the new facility you've you've got a tremendous amount more capacity what were some of the wins like what were some of the exciting times during that period of growth before you had you know so many more breweries taking over and all that but what, what, what were some of the
1: fun things you did uh we just enjoyed the whole process oh the, there's some really good festivals down here so yeah you get to get to festival Have it was still yeah fairly early in for craft beer people so people would come along and, and not know what half the beers were so saison was a particular one that people had never heard of uh we had a milk stout early on and people go oh, why is it a milk stout and he was playing to it and then yeah they'd get to taste the beers and just watching people who'd never tried a style of beer before and and then just really enjoy it yeah it was probably the most rewarding part of it all
0: right and you you won a couple of awards right
1: that is true yeah so that's right there yeah. we uh aobas um is the australian international beer award which they hold in melbourne every year so i think it's one of the biggest judging events in the year in the world annually um there's yeah, several thousand beers entered into it so uh we went we won well i think for the yeah for every beer for the first five years i think we won a medal and we won a few golds and then yeah, we did win two trophies so trophies is pretty much best in class. So that was, um yeah, was, that's a fairly high accolade that, you know, was really nice to win.
0: One question I always have with those is you know, the, in everyone's award situation is a little bit different, but from a sales perspective, did it move the needle for you and make a difference having won some of those awards?
1: Not a huge amount. The milk's there. The second one we won, the first one didn't. We actually thought it would. We brewed a big batch of it and, Tried to push it out and, and we always found that the the amber that we made, it was, yeah, people would always say they loved the beer. It was my favorite style of beer at the time, so I enjoyed making it. And yeah, once I won an ARBA trophy, I figured this is great. We'll get more of it out. And the keg sold really well, but still bottles struggled. So people didn't go into a bottle shop and buy a, a, an amber uh, or a hoppy red or a red IPA or maybe we named it incorrectly or something, but um <laughs> Yeah. Red IPAs are becoming a thing now, but maybe we're five years ahead of our time or something. But I think the milk stout did, that was that ended up being quite a good seller. And stouts don't sell particularly well in Australia. So to have the stout sell as much as it did, yeah, I think we got some recognition for that. So yeah, that did help a bit.
0: So from that perspective, what, what beers were the ones that, looking back, were the most successful for you as far as, and maybe they're different, but as far as distribution, credibility, and profitability were there certain beers that really excelled in each of those areas or one that was just across the board the beer that you guys were known for or did best with
1: yeah some of the one-offs we got a lot of recognition for so we did a west coast IPA that people uh, that sold really well and i think it won some popularity thing i can not remember exactly what it was but it was like yeah that was great and then basically then as we've done that and then we've released a as as, as we released our core range we released an ipa and it was basically the same beer but people kept complaining that we need to bring back the West Coast IPA. And just tell them it's the same beer; it's just labelled differently. So, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so and like it, it sold well enough, and that was yeah, that was probably one of our more successful beers. But yeah, that, the surprising one was probably the Milk Stout. That sort of that um that did help. That was a financially very good beer, especially because there tends to be quite a seasonal beer culture. So people drink a lot more pale ales and IPAs in summer. So winters can be quite quiet; they don't go out as much. Whereas Having a stout as a core range beer that sold really well meant that at least it flattened out our our earnings for the year. We didn't have a big lull in winter to try and get through things, so that was probably a bonus.
0: Unfortunately, we have that same issue here, and then distributors make it worse, so usually January, February, and March are the, the months that every brewery thinks about closing every year. <laughs> so it sucks. But for us that's out into
1: <laughs> just yeah.
0: end of the summer or I'm sorry, end of the winter and it just hasn't really like hit yet. Beers are everyone's kind of they drank too much for Christmas and it's that first quarter is always a bitch. So as this is growing, does it get easier or harder to sell the beer And when you're going to the places at this point, And this is, what, 16, 17 probably? When you're going to a retailer, you guys have credibility now. You have awards. Like, Is it is it easier to sell, or are you starting to see at this point that competition piece
1: um, rearing its head? Um, there was. A couple of years in there, it got easier. Um, I'm just trying to think which year. probably 16, seven, eight, It's probably still not too bad. But then, yeah, it sort of pushed down after that so maybe maybe 16 15 16 was picking up probably by 17 18 and definitely 19 the competition was really hitting hard and yeah the whole um shelf space thing was a big thing like oh yeah we've, we've got this many beers we've got these many more people coming in if you wanted a new beer put in somewhere that you could be told they don't have space for it come back in two weeks and then you wouldn't uh, yeah it became yeah, very hard to get beer in anywhere especially anywhere new so, well, I'm
0: always struck by how much beer costs. Um, and like I went to your website and I looked at some other different places and, you know, like it, just like a general case is what, like $85 of some of your IPA type beers.
1: Yeah, um, is, beer is very expensive. Yeah, yeah, Excise is high in Australia. So a lot of it is taxed. But yeah, definitely it's more expensive than most places. Definitely more expensive than American beer. When I came to America for the first time, it was probably, what, 99? And I walked into a Walked into a, a shop and it was a case of beer. It was like $16 or something like that. Like, wow, this is the greatest country in the world. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how do you manage that excise tax when you're figuring out your pricing? Do, do you have to sort of just add a percentage more? Or I guess I get, you have to be competitive too, but how did you decide on your pricing with everybody else based well, on that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I pretty much put a, put a spreadsheet together that calculated um, excise. all uh, well, pretty much uh, uh, putting all my costs and just uh, had excise worked out but just based on the percentage of the beer and yeah put all that in and you, you got a, a cost to manufacture and then you try and add, add a little bit to it so you can make some money so yeah the the little bit added to it was uh some beers were all right but some beers were pretty tight because uh you, you just look at the pricing and go if i try and sell this you know mid-strength pale ale or something for more than this amount it's just not going to sell so instead sort of just cut it fine and be a Hopefully, a volume mover or something, but that was always really
0: hard. From your perspective, did the high excise tax define some of the beers that you made? Were there beers you would have liked to make that you didn't because of the excise tax, for example?
1: Um, Not really. No. And, and people in Australia expect that. So if you make a 10% beer, people know they're going to pay a lot of money for it. It's going to be 140 bucks a case, something like that. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't make. And we, you probably wouldn't make as big a batch because, yeah, you wouldn't put, sell as much and people wouldn't buy a case. They'd buy. May, probably one can, maybe four at the most. So yeah, you'd probably only do a smaller batch of that, or a, a one-off run. Or but yeah, didn't, I don't even stop just making any. Well, I know that
0: the challenge to me sounds like you have to pay that excise tax before you release the beer. At least in the states, you have like a monthly and quarterly number that you have to you, you add up your tax and send it in. But you can sell the beer, monetize it, and then use that money to pay the government their taxes. But you guys have to pay that shit up front, which is crazy to me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's- and yeah, when we started off, it was worse. They have eased it a little bit that you now it was a, uh, well, it's become a monthly payment. So you pay at the end of the month, but you usually haven't sold the beer by then. And yeah, they've also increased the amount you can make and get a rebate on. So you don't pay the full amount on all of it. But yeah, when it was starting, it was, yeah, it was incredibly hard. So another thing is they have in Australia, they have a much lower tax on wine. Mm-hmm. So you can get a bottle of wine for six or seven dollars and you struggle to get a can of beer for that. So. Yeah, If people are struggling with, with their finances and they really feel like a drink, then a bottle of wine might be the way to go.
0: That's funny because we kind of have the opposite culture in the States that wine is the upscale drink and beer is the everyman's drink. It isn't necessarily because of taxes, but just price points are
1: higher. But that's weird. Well, then, the $7 bottle of wine's not going to be very good. But.
0: Yeah. <laughs> But it'll get the job done. All right. Well, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about where some of the struggle parts went. And and in my business, and most people I've talked to, you don't go out of business without seeing some ups and downs. And so, you guys obviously had some pivots and some hopefully some wins there. And uh, I want to hear some of those stories as well. So Let's take a quick break. We we'll are
1: right back. Yeah, that's okay.
0: he were interested in anything as his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation to all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at m2mcomms, m2mcomms, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet and SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson you got a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AcuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. Acubrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those, how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install Acubrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer up your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to acubrew.io, enter damn. At checkout for 10% off your sensor. Follow them on socials at Accubrew or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Alright, welcome back. Like I said, I want to talk about the wins. Uh, we know there are struggles and pain and crap beer. Like the employees steals from you, the landlord ejects the rent to the stratosphere, distributors you never want to talk to again. But you usually pivot and have you know a, a new direction that tends to work for a while. So tell me some of those, like some of what were some of the struggles that you worked up against during this period? Because this is what seventeen, eighteen, let's say, through at least up up before COVID, because that one's an obvious one why everybody screwed got screwed on that one. But yeah. what were some struggles you, you dealt yeah. with and how'd you win?
1: Uh, it was it was oh it was just always interesting trying to deal with um, uh, retailers. So they'd get the beer in, they'd love it, even if it sold really well. We had one story where we sold this a keg to a pub, and it was. Close to where I used to work. So I told my friends, uh, got sold in there on Wednesday, Wednesday night and it was a keg of Scotch Ale. So like a seven, seven and a half percent Scotch Ale, which is interesting and probably unheard of beer in Australia. So I, yeah, my, my friends who worked around the corner went in for Friday lunch and, um, they, it was gone. So this little pub had gone through a whole keg of this novelty beer in a day on a Thursday. Um, and then we didn't get them to buy another one. <laughs> Like, oh no, we're going to rotate to something else. It's like, I don't really want to get another one in so my friends can actually get to taste it. Yeah. Um, so, and it took, it took three more batches of beer being put through before they even took a second keg. So yeah, it was just hard to deal with the yeah, the lack of consistency. And even, even when you, you know, if you sell some beer and it doesn't sell well, you can understand that they don't want to buy any more. But when it does sell that well, it's hard to uh, understand why, why they won't take any more. One of the big issues we came up against we had ended up being uh, well an off flavor coming through the beer and yeah would a couple of the beers were noticeable we we had to dump a couple and then we'd we put these beer the beer out and then at in the beers we'd put out the flavor got worse and it ended up being a contamination of the malt we were using really so yeah so and it yeah it basically made all the beer taste like I don't know it just tasted like off almonds or something so yeah we had to recall several batches of beer so that was um. Yeah, that was a really tough one. And I'm sure that 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 was sort of just after we'd gone to Cairns and we're trying to ramp up into a summer and, yeah, had to pull all our beers back. And, yeah, that was the only time I think we had negative feedback on the beers we were producing. Yeah, I think that timing-wise really hurt us. But, yeah, we sort of had to pull it all off shelves and try and make sure that no one was still selling it and then try and get more beer out. So, yeah, that was that was probably the one, one of the hardest bits to go through.
0: How does uh, the a recall look like there? Did you have to, because you were self-distributing in some areas, you had to go back and get it yourself? Did you have the distributor that had some too? Um, everyone goes through this, but not everyone handles it correctly. So
1: Yeah. So, yeah, we just had to trace all the sales we made. So, the stuff, we uh, we, yeah, we used to, um, most of it was still at the um, logistics company. So, we basically just told them to quarantine it off and destroy it. And anything that had gone out, we sort of called up the shops and said, put it away. And we'll, um, yeah, if you're happy to dispose of it, great. But um, otherwise, we'll come and pick it up and have it returned. So, okay. Yeah, We've got most of it back out, I think.
0: Yeah, those are stressful times because the sales that you made go to zero. And then you have to replace that beer with good beer. So you basically have like a uh, a double double whammy month because you have to then reproduce to get mm-hmm. it. Did, were you able to come out of that and continue to grow? Was that, you said that was. Time the first negative feedback was that something you still dealt with towards the end.
1: Um, yeah, we grew a bit, a bit more. We weren't, probably not growing as fast then. And Again, that was probably competition as much as anything else. Yeah, that was when it was becoming quite hard. And you know and that's when you're sort of looking at all your options. And we, I think we had one rep in Melbourne, so we, we put a second one on and thought, oh, you know, two, two reps would drop And even though at the time it's like, well, we're not selling enough beer, but um, if we get two reps on, then they, if they can sell the amount of beer they need to to support, support themselves, then it'll help us grow but it never reached that critical point of going, right, they're paying for themselves now And yeah, just talk just talking to the sales reps is like yeah, it's just tough. They'll go out and they'll go they'll go to twenty places and that was that during that point where people said that they they'd already got sort of twenty um, 20 samples from different breweries, 20 reps had come in. So there's just not, not, not enough shops, not enough space on shelves to, to put all the beer that you need to sell. So yeah, that's when the, the market was most oversaturated probably.
0: So at that point, you guys had seen like a dramatic increase in breweries in the number of beers. And were there just not as many new kind of craft beer bars opening? You know, we had a proliferance too when the craft beer thing was really taken off where a restaurant that had four taps would, would double them with split shanks or whatever. So you've got eight now. But even that wasn't enough. You just didn't have the outlets to sell the beer. And then we also dealt with, the, or, or still dealing with, the formatting thing too. Glass just died. Um, large format glass died even faster. What, what was that like there and for you guys as far as like at the market?
1: Yeah, we had the same thing. That would have been probably 2015 or 16. And yeah, it was. cans started coming in. And it was like, oh, they want a novelty. And yeah, over that probably two-year period, it went from a bottle shop with maybe a couple of cans, or you go you, your you, yeah, majors would still have like cases of cans, but no craft beer was in cans. It was just frowned upon. And then yeah, the yeah move to cans just yeah, happened. So again, luckily because we had the shared brewery, the Kaiju guys were very keen on going to cans, and they they hit the uh the market really well with a beer they called Crush. So. That put us into that's uh, gave us the option to go to cans. So and again, that's we probably we probably should have done a better job rebranding the cans than we did at the time as well. And then yeah, that's we did a couple of changes because we did an initial can based on the original bottles, and then we did a full redesign into the core range that we had. But yeah, I, we didn't, we didn't market the cans well enough, and yeah, that's probably when we started to go backwards in the market.
0: Well, as a philosophical question, because most people, in my opinion, who got their kind of like beer philosophy start in the UK, um, understanding Belgian beers, those those types, I fought cans largely because I didn't want my beer presented that way. I just, I wanted glass. I like glass. I like large format glass. So I fought it way too long um, and I lost the battle. So whatever, it, it should have changed earlier. But do you wish that you didn't have to sell your beer in cans? Do you like glass better or do you even give a shit?
1: I actually quite like cans. So I like I'll usually pour it out of out of the can or bottle into a glass anyway. But yeah, I, I don't mind cans. I do I do like the good. I do like the experience of a, a big bottle of, of a Belgian sour or something like that. That's a that's always a an interesting. And I guess if you're going to age your age your beer at all, then you probably want it in um uh, in bottles. Well,
0: I've seen people age in cans. I guess it can be done. So one of the other reasons that I fought cans so much is that the pricing didn't work for for my beer, and maybe that's different in the states. So. If you took a six pack of bottles versus a six pack of cans, the cost basis on all of those, the cans were less profitable, I guess is the best way to say that. So I don't know if you did it at the time or if you've done it since, but did you find that there, did you have to raise or lower the prices in cans? And then was that more or less profitable when you
1: did it? No, there wasn't a big difference. so long as you could do your cans printed, because uh, if you bought a batch of printed cans, they were basically the printing was free. So by the time you bought your bottle and your label and your cap, it ended up being similar. So yeah, that wasn't a big, wasn't a big issue for us.
0: So now you've got the cans. You're running into the market, and you said you're starting to see some issues with just not having enough places to sell beer. When was
1: this? Like overall kind of timeline? Probably 2018, 2019. So, so and we're still selling, we're still selling kegs. Ke- kegs were selling really well, but kegs weren't as profitable. So yeah, we and there kegs for what we were selling the the amount we're selling was a high percentage of kegs but there wasn't much more growth in that either so yeah that's why we sort of needed to up the packaged stock sales and yeah we just we could never do it
0: and were you at this point like looking to expand distribution further um other areas did you try talking to other distributors and just didn't make any headway or what was the what was the plan to continue to keep the revenue where you needed to be
1: Yeah, we tried, um, yeah, we tried everything. So we tried, we got a distributor in Western Australia and he was very hot and cold. We got, we actually employed a guy in Adelaide and he was repping for us over there and he sold a little bit and then he disappeared. (laughs) I actually don't know what happened to him. Then, then we tried um, contacting a couple of other people to take on our beer, and they just said they didn't have space in their range. So yeah, we we tried several things, and um, yeah, didn't didn't manage to grow it very much.
0: Okay, yeah, I even tried going international at one point because like this, I'm in I'm in deep shit. I got to go wherever I can go, and it just it never really it didn't it didn't move the needle enough to monetize it. That's for sure. So
1: yeah, we did a little bit of that. We had one yeah one one deal. Actually, we sent a pallet to Canada at one point because they were looking for um like trophy wing beers or gold medal winning beers. So, yeah, we've got, I think we've got a pallet of milk stout sent to Canada. But the problem is the cost of Australian beer is so expensive that, well, you get your excise back, but still, yeah, the labor cost and manufacturing cost, once you add shipping, it ends up being expensive going international with it. So.
0: We're shipping on a boat all the way to Canada, so that's a lot. So, at, at this point, I'm curious what your market's like. So, what what are the beers people are losing their minds for? Because that changed for us to, like, by 1819 quality was no longer even really the thing people talked about
1: yeah nice yeah very much um, there was novelty beers and then um i guess the the hazies hit pretty hard about then so yeah they became the fad and everyone needed to have a hazy and yeah the australian hazies tend to be really sweet hmm. a lot of them have lactose in it and i wasn't a big fan of it so yeah we we kind of avoided it for a while we produced a couple of more i guess original american style with just double dry hops and a different yeast no no lactose and not as hazy and not as sweet and um yeah pe- people complained that it wasn't what a Nipah should be but I, did, I, I just didn't want to make a cloying beer so we didn't and then the market was crowded with that and then probably after that um the sales started hitting so that's yeah. that tendency where people were trying to move to there was a short phase of brute ipos <laughs> and then yeah just yeah and oh yeah there was a phase in there just of novelty beers so you know pick pick a, a chocolate bar or a a, a, a sweet or something like that and make a flavored beer and, uh, and so i was definitely picked up as well about then so yeah in the start of summer everyone would put a sour out
0: okay and how did you decide which ones to experiment with like for me i hated those kinds of beers but it was hard to sit by and watch other people make money and get attention for having made them um and i don't know which was the right answer but i still stayed firm i was like fuck y'all i'm not making these but what did you do
1: like, how did you decide what to make and whatnot um pretty much we I didn't want to make anything I didn't like, so yeah, we didn't really do it. And even the, even the so-called hazies or neapers, or however you're going to call them, were yeah, were still IPAs rather than sort of dessert beers. Okay. <laughs> and like I, I do like sours, so we made a couple of sours. I think two over the top. We did a couple of fruited ones, which were nice. Just yeah, pro- proper fruit or juice or pulp, so rather than just flavorings. And yeah, just mostly kettle, kettle sour stuff. We did a couple in barrel, but yeah, mostly just kettle sour stuff put through. Okay. No seltzers? No, no seltzers. I did look at it and I thought about it. But then by the time, by the time I sort of thought, oh, you know, it might be worth doing. There was that many of them on the market. Like, well, um, we probably don't have the capacity and then we don't, then we'd have to go through a whole, at this point, I was just thinking, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to have to just spend a whole bunch of money on marketing to get it up. And we're just competing with the big guys over that. So yeah, didn't take a run at that.
0: Well, and I'm sure same thing happened there. It kind of died. Well, partially the same thing. Everybody ran into that space, and then there wasn't enough space in that space, and so a lot of people stopped making and Yeah, no one was making money there.
1: So yeah, and I—I I, I worked out marketing wasn't my strong point, so I wasn't gonna bet my bet my life on that one. So
0: well, so how does COVID enter the scene? So you're we're already crowded and uh, dealing with trying to find pockets of where to sell, how to expand, how to keep things going. You add a new salesperson. And then the world comes to a screeching fucking halt during COVID. And there's different stories here. My brewery's best sales months were during the lockdowns because we were in package. We had something unique and it worked well for us. But then it, it died. And when it died and now it's been worse. But so talk about what COVID happened to you guys.
1: COVID wasn't great for us. As, as I said earlier, um, we weren't selling a lot of pack. We were selling mostly kegs. Mm. And we, um, with the, we had Victoria had some of the worst shutdowns in the world. We had the full lockdowns for several weeks at a time so yeah all the pubs were shut i know the the people who were selling a good amount of beer were the people who were in the major distributors so the, our biggest distributor over here is called dan murphy's yeah they they were selling huge amounts of beer so the people who had and we we'd never put our beer we'd never got our beer into dan murphy's we got into a couple of the smaller chains but yeah the, the the requirements to get into dan stands we never quite met so but we know that the kaiju guys were brewing with they were just flat out trying to keep up with Demand to stock their shelves at Dan's. So uh, yeah, people people allowed to go go out. They weren't allowed to travel more than 5k's, and so yeah, there's a lot of drinking going on. So you go to Dan by by slab and probably some spirits. And but um, oh, it, it did it did help. Double IPA sales went through the roof. But um, our sort of our lower alcohol beers completely stopped because people are very much drinking for the for the effect. Uh, <laughs> That's an
0: interesting phenomenon that I'm sure happened more places, but I don't know if I've ever actually really talked about that. People were drinking a lot more, but I I don't recall there being a flight to higher alcohol beers. But be interesting to research. Maybe there was.
1: On oh, our range, definitely there was.
0: So you you uh, you mentioned there were requirements to be in Dan Murphy's. What what were the requirements that you weren't able to meet?
1: Well, initially it was the production amounts, but um, even then once once we felt. We could do that. Basically, you've just got to get accepted. So they only take a certain uh, yeah a certain number of people in, and um yeah, we applied a couple of times and just yeah produced you know, samples and pricing and everything for them, and yeah, never never got uh, taken in. So yeah,
0: that's a pain in the ass. But it probably would have been a good and bad. Like you would have scaled up production, but then maybe you're the smallest guys in there, and ultimately it wasn't profitable. So you never know, right? Maybe it wasn't. It was meant to be. So how long did that? covid issue last for you guys did uh did cans finally come back at retail for you or was that sort of like the market had changed and stayed changed going forward
1: we kind of got back to not far off what we were selling before but we really needed to grow to, to continue growing to get to be profitable and to be able to pay um, all the costs and wages and everything so and that was yeah that was the rate we did a rebranding sort of at the start of covid and that was yeah plan was to come out of covid and sell more beer and yeah it was sort of nah, didn't happen basically it was sort of yeah didn't matter how how much we, and again we put on a, another salesperson and they were yeah, running around going to as many places as possible and just the yeah the constant story of yeah we don't have room right now come back next week maybe we'll do something this and that we'll get back to you so yeah just couldn't get the sales through the door
0: well and then you guys so that's about kind of two years maybe two and a half maybe since then that you tried different things and, and uh, worked different angles and ended up still closing in 2023 i would like to hear not only how that went down but um you know where you th- what you think that says about the australian craft beer market in general partially because i read somewhere that you said that you may come back to the industry so i'd like to know how that's gonna be but let's take a quick break and we come back we'll do our final segment and let's get into all that Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they would get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at BreweryDirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back to the fourth and final segment. I appreciate you hanging in there from across the other side of the world. So where we left off was basically after COVID, you had hoped that, Things were going to turn around. You hired a salesperson. You did a rebrand, which I mentioned before, but I will mention again. I I think it looks crisp and badass and <laughs> should, should have worked. It's a cool lineup. I like the labels. But as you were kind of trying to struggle through it, there were a lot of economic factors, obviously, you said that were a part of it. And I guess let's kind of go back to that. Like So from, let's say, twenty late 2021, maybe on, you guys, during that two-year period, had tried some different things. You were fighting the fight, right? What worked? Were there any wins on the pivot side or was it just kind of like one sort of like punch to the face after another up until last summer when you finally decided to close?
1: No, like, yeah, worked as, as we were talking about, we did sell a lot of keg beer and when that went away, that was a real struggle but we did a little group of people and we had um, sales, well, we had marketing and sales people, so mine and laws worked very hard on on getting the website up to speed and getting the um, direct sales going. So yeah, that picked up in a big way. So you get your margins on your direct sales. And yeah, that did help and kept us going for a bit. Just in Victoria, COVID was, well, it was, I think the worst lockdowns in the world. They so we went through two phases of several months of lockdown. So it was draining personally. It was draining on everyone around you. It was draining on the family. It was draining on the business. Yeah. And after the first one, we thought, oh, that was, yeah, you know, that was hard, but we made it. And then when they started the second one, and especially because after they didn't, they didn't give any notice that they were free us from the lockdowns so they kind of go okay you can everyone can go out now and the bars can open and stuff like that we didn't have any kegs so because we had no notice we had to magic up some kegs which obviously takes several weeks and per skew and go through and, and then so got got their new kegs out and then we went through another lock, lockdown <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was a good punch in the face but yeah look, um, there was a lot of support local groups and direct sales and we're out doing deliveries and things like that which was actually really good because it got us out of the house otherwise it was illegal to leave the house or go with more than 5 k's. but if you had a work permit and that was a the thing about Australia is they they lock down all kinds of things like churches and hospitals, but they don't shut down the, the alcohol because um, there might be a riot. So yeah, the big liquor stores did a huge trade, and we I guess we classify under food and beverage manufacture. But yeah, they weren't they're never, they were never going to shut down the production of alcohol. So yeah, they. Yeah. And then we got released again and had the same issue of needing kegs. And, and then, yeah, we had the rebrand and we thought it looked great. And again, it should, it was something we should have done eight years ago, not two years ago and done it properly from the start and run it like a business and had the marketing all planned out. Yeah. We got it out and yeah, it was a lot of work and we spent a lot of time stressing over it and had good, good design people working with us. And and we got it out and sort of the, the, market sort of half accepted it, half didn't particular sites that like to criticize stuff. So. We got um we got everything from um it's too amateur to it's too professional. So <laughs> it's, it's always a way to judge things. It's like when when you make an IPA and someone says it's too hoppy and someone else says it's not hoppy enough. You reckon you must have about right. So yeah, we got we got some comments saying it was like some school kid had done it and some someone else saying it was oh, I was a corporate seller and this and that. So I was like yeah anyway. Um but yeah after COVID a small period where things went okay people just keen to get out and and then yeah things. Just slow down like right across the industry. Talking to any people still brewing at the moment, I think everyone's struggling to move the amount of beer that they moved pre-COVID. And yeah, we, we really needed to increase our sales to make things viable. And it just wasn't looking good. And last year I'm looking at, um, the interest rate, interest rates start pushing up, the inflation start pushing up and just discretionary spending becoming a massive issue going forward. And that was kind of the thing that said, well, when, when, yeah. We're either going to going have to go into a massive massive amount of debt and try and grow it, or hold it up. So yeah, I wasn't really prepared to go into debt over it. So yeah, we turned around and wound it up. So
0: how did those conversations go? These are these are the kind of questions that always fascinate me because when you've got a partner, and at this point, I think Phrase has gone back to work already, right? Yeah. But obviously, it's still, as well as uh, yeah. you care. You know what he thinks. So like, so how did those conversations go? Was, he, was were you guys both on board the whole time? Did you have to convince him? Like, how, how did that work?
1: Uh, no, he was very much um, whatever you think, because he wasn't as involved in the business at the time. And I've said to him, like, this is the issue, and he goes, he didn't know the inside running at the time anyway. And yeah, he he was over the beer industry and trying to run a business. couple of years earlier anyway. (laughs) So yeah, he wasn't going to try and push for it to keep going. And yeah, he was back working in IT again. So yeah, like it was sad that what we created was going to not exist anymore, but he completely understood and he was really good with it. Uh, We we Mm -hmm. talk a lot on the show about how
0: businesses tend to fail slowly.
1: And when I look back
0: on my career, there were five kind of like solid times where if I was just looking at it as a business, I absolutely should have closed then. <laughs> so one question I always have for everybody is looking back now, did you ever have, do you see any of those where you're like, oh, dude, remember when this happened? Man, we probably should have gotten out then and maybe we would have lost less or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, what? yeah, def- definitely. Um, and look, that's, there were times when the sales weren't great and we were pushing things. And I was just, I was kind of that would chat with people about it and they, they'd say, but the beer is so good. Yeah. It has to kind of work. And so, and I wanted to believe that. So, and yeah, I was, I was very proud of the beer I produced. So I, I was happy to believe it as long as I could. And then you so say we, but we did try everything we could. We tried bringing people on. We tried rebranding. We tried different sales approaches. And yeah, so by the time I, I did decide to wind it up. I just thought that I tried everything and uh, that was, the, the, our time was done. So time to get out. You guys had a, a bar kind of that was like
0: your, what, you know, I don't know, go to bar? Like the, I'll, I won't pronounce it correctly. The, the U King bar. How do you, how do you say that one?
1: Yeah. Which had closed
0: about a year uh, before.
1: Yeah. It's, that's right. Yeah. So uh, it's Flemish for exit. So it's the Huttgang, uh, But uh-huh. we, in Australia, like it's, we, we just pronounce it sort of outgang. however people want to say it we don't really mind we're not yeah we'd occasionally get some um dutch or belgian people come in and say oh it's a great name we say it but yeah none of the locals knew it was a slow process to explain to people that the exit beer (laughs) and the outgang name were aligned and things like that so but yeah like it was a cool little space in like an inner melbourne suburb of richmond and uh, it was when it worked it was great but again probably marketing for that wasn't brilliant i think we didn't have the enough full direction. We tried to do a bit of everything with it. We wanted to be welcoming to Ireland and yeah, and have everything available, but we probably didn't focus on it well enough and brand it well enough. And, and there's a lot of competition in that area. And yeah, COVID really hurt that because of yeah, the length of the lockdowns. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's exactly. kind of like your,
0: or your, your, or an extension tasting room, I guess, or an on-premise thing. In the states, the Brewers association continues to say, and sort of the underlying current with most people is that you know that's the way to make money now, and that the only way to do it is to have a tasting room that has a bar that has you know other sources of income. In Australia, does that seem to hold water, or is it just a different market? It doesn't necessarily work there.
1: Um, I think people do enjoy a brew pub, and if you go there and you've got the steel and everything, it's all shiny and it's an experience, then they can work. Again, everything has to be right about them. And we probably didn't quite we, – well, we didn't have the brewery in the bar. so it was kind of just a tap room. And we also probably didn't promote it well enough as to – to the small group of craft beer fans, they knew. Mm-hmm. But we, we had to sort of somehow promote it to the general pop, pop populace of what it was and they'd be getting fresh beer straight from the brewery and all kinds of things like that. It so, just so, so didn't quite work. Um, and again, we, we it's something we didn't have enough experience in as well. We weren't bar operators. We'd never opened a row. we spend a lot of time in bars, but apparently that's different. So it's like <laughs> watching golf on TV and assuming I'm going to be good at it because it looks easy. <laughs> Pretty sure that's how it
0: works. <laughs> Grum, you drink like really, really well. I drink a lot. You should totally open a bar. You'll, you'll understand the hospitality. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As yeah, dumb as that much. sounds, I know people who have had a similar conversation. Uh. So. Well, so that closes. Obviously, that had to kind of put a struggle to like and all that was going forward. But let's, let's talk about how you decided to do it. So everyone does it differently. I always say there's no right answer, but you did have a party going away. It looked like it was kind of a quick announcement on social media and then you had like a party at a- another bar. Was that an obvious choice? Did you guys just, dis- was it challenging to decide how to close and-, and how to make that look?
1: Timing was probably the biggest issue. So when we decided to, to close it down, we had quite a bit of beer we just brewed and I thought we should move, at least try and sell through a fair bit of that before we pulled closing up because once you close up. I just felt that shops may just say, well, we'll, we'll reallocate that shelf space if the beer is going to go away anyway. So yeah, we moved through on time and things like that. And then yeah, I, I spoke to a team who worked for me and they all understood. They said, look, yeah, we've been a... A weekly assessment point saying we need to make more sales and it never happened. So yeah, they were again not you know, a bit sad about the the fact, but completely understood the position we're in. So then we said, well, it'll be our birthday coming up. We can celebrate our final birthday. And the Bar Grape and Grain in Moravian is um, yeah, they were one of the first ones to support us when we first started brewing kegs I'd usually drop one in there on the way home and I'd always take whatever we produced and they'd always supported us and for their birthday we'd often done a one-off beer for them so yeah sort of we had a, a very good relationship with them so it just felt like a good location for us to go and celebrate the brewery that had been and um catch up with some people who had enjoyed the beer so yeah it was a good night afternoon
0: yeah what was the party like did you have a lot of kind of people come out of the woodworks and was it I'm sure it's always a mix of like sad and happy, but what was the overall experience of the, of the closing party like for you?
1: Oh, it was lovely. Yeah, so we had lots of people just say how much they'd enjoyed the beer and how, yeah, because I guess a lot of people had discovered or they were very early on their craft beer journey and had our beers and going, well, this yeah, this is new and different and exciting and sort of was a, a um, mind, mind-opening mind beer for them. So I, I really like something other than what I've had before. So, yeah, and that was always one of my favorite parts of having a brew was having people come up and, and say they've learned something new or discovered something different or tasted something unexpected or something they like. So, yeah, it was good. Did
0: you guys have some special stuff for the party, like stellar uh, beers that came out or whatever, or just kind of cleared out the inventory?
1: story? Yeah, well, we had what we had. And we did. We had some barrel-aged Imperial camp stout. out. That was a 10% smoke beer that had been in cognac barrels. That was the, the big one. That was our last big beer we put out. That was a good one.
0: So then from there, was that kind of the last day, and then you guys moved forward? Did you have to sort of liquidate stuff? It's so just different everywhere, but I've talked to a guy I just interviewed this last week, actually, who closed in June, and he's still kind of working through all the logistics of liquidating the equipment and getting rid of everything. He's just now kind of done from what, three, four months later.
1: Yeah. Well, they, luckily, the equipment went back to Kaiju. So, because that was always the agreement we had in the shared brewery space, was before he walked away, they'd buy it back. So, yeah, that's a that's a good result. It's an ongoing process that they're repaying it over time, which is fine. And yeah, we still had a little bit of beer to go through. And we still get, um, there's still accounting things to wrap up and things like that as they come in. But yeah, really hasn't, I haven't done and much at all. There's a few loose ends I need to tie it up, whether I, the business still exists. So there's still registrations and things like that, whether I. Just close it down or whether we'll I do something else with it I haven't decided yet. So, Well,
0: that's a, that's a big statement. So you did mention, at least in one interview that I heard, if not a couple, that you're not walking away from the idea of potentially coming back to the industry. But that was months ago you said that. Is that uh, still the case? Are you considering a uh, return I, to greatness?
1: I was. Yeah, I was tossing up whether I go back to an IT job or whether I get a brewing job. And it just depended on whether the right brewing job came up. Yeah, in the right area, I live know, um, an hour. Uh, southeast of Melbourne. So there's only a handful of breweries out here and I would I probably wouldn't want to commute more than half an hour because it just takes too much away from family life. So yeah, if the right brewery had a been looking for a brewer at the time, then maybe I would have taken it on. But yeah, now I've gone back to IT now and I'm happy doing that and I'll do that for at least a few years, I think. At some point, maybe if I was going to do it again, I might just open a, a brew pub and just not try and sell into the market, just run a little Sort of sing, single venue setup, but yeah that's just a, a maybe yeah. so my my current plan as far as brewing goes is to uh um, we're renting where we are now we're going to try and buy a house around the same area and then once i get a house set up then i'll probably try and set up a home brew system and then um yeah that'll be my my brewing for myself sort of for the next few years i think
0: yeah interesting I haven't haven't touched brewing since the day I left and uh, have not missed it at all, but everyone's got a different relationship to it, especially from the creativity piece. But I think that's great because in some ways, the failure wrecked my kind of feeling of the industry overall and I got more angry. You don't seem to be angry at all. How did you deal with losing the dream? Was it, are you just that much more zen than me or you uh, have some tricks?
1: I think I done it for a number of years and I sort of, I, yeah, I guess I fell out of fell in love with the brewery because I was running a company not brewing anymore. So it kind of pushed me away from being a brewer to being a business owner and sort of gave me that little bit of separation that means that I don't hate the brewing process, I guess.
0: Just, yeah? just the business?
1: <laughs> yeah. And plus... I, I miss the beer, so yeah, you can, you can go out and try and find good beer and half the time you get good stuff and half the time you don't, so I was out, out for dinner tonight, I ordered a pale ale and it was um slightly infected, just had that real re- little hint of uh, wild yeast starting to kick in, so like, oh look, a cleansing ale, that's not what they meant to do, so... <laughs> And, um, yeah, you don't know whether it was the brewery or whether it's the venues changed taps on it and infected it themselves or whatever it is, but it's just, yeah, you pick up these quite subtle. No, no one else at the table picked it up, but it was just, yeah, you have to know too much about beer to, to, to run a, a brewery. And uh, yeah, just, yeah, if you can make your own thing, you're happy with it. It's a good result. Well,
0: that was, plus, well, uh, plus
1: beer is very expensive in Australia. So it's going to be a lot cheaper to make it myself. So
0: yeah, you don't pay the excise tax. I didn't think about that. Home brewing probably mm-hmm. is a lot in the states. It's really not cheaper and a lot of times it ends up being slightly more expensive, which sucks, but that's the reality of it. But so you brought up having a beer that was potentially infected. The question I have, and I this is one that, I don't know, I dealt with a lot, was a big struggle for me. But for you, when you look around the industry and you see other breweries that are more successful or, and let's use that, let's put quotation marks around the term successful, but more popular, wider distribution whatever and they're still in business why do you think they're still in business and you left and, and i think i know the answer but i want to hear you say it
1: uh yeah m- uh, most of the time a lot of it is marketing i think and yeah i know we did a bad job of that that was yeah uh, something i never focused on or i didn't focus on until w- way too long into the uh, into the journey so yeah branding and branding and marketing would be most of it and i think that's i think that's it in life and it's i guess i i don't really get affected buy marketing as much as a lot of people like people buy what's popular because it's popular whereas i've always been very logical on assessing the product and saying do i like it or not not what are they telling me it is what is it actually when i thought well i'm making good beer it should be fine (laughs) it was uh yeah and that's yeah I guess I blame my mom because she told me not to judge a book by its cover. So Thanks, mom. Yeah, thanks for nothing, mom. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. So, yeah, I, mean, I definitely would agree that the marketing plays a bigger role than we'd all wish that it would, right? Like, it should be whoever makes the best beer wins, but it definitely is
1: not. Hmm. So it's just just the way people are, and that's for for a lot of years. It was, um, people you could hear people walk into a shop and say, What's new? They're not, I don't know, walking and say, What's good? What's what's maybe what's what's fresh is more than understandable. What's fresh, what's good, but yeah, people people absolutely wanted what's new, they had to try something new, so even if it was complete crap.
0: But here, we definitely had a situation where the consumer wasn't able to ascertain the difference between crap and good. And that and untapped definitely helped with that to just drive down the overall quality because it didn't matter as long as it had something unique and different about it. It could be fermented wrong. It could have residual sweetness. It could have off flavors like this motherfucker. And it could be completely out of balance. In a lot of ways, that's what they wanted. It sounds like there's some similarities in, in the Australian market, but are you seeing that where just the rise of all these beers that that empirically aren't good? is kind of crowding out the beers that are
1: well, I, I, we've been through that place that, that's happened it's that's probably happening less now people have worked out that you know they'll, they'll pay 12 or 14 dollars for a can of beer and realize it's not very nice and they only do that a couple of times before they go. Yeah, that was stupid i'm not doing that anymore so yeah that's that was definitely happening a few years ago and, and it happens far less now and yeah, the quality over the years has improved but it's also the issue of trying to get fresh beer some of the shops just they buy a bunch in they sit they sit on the shelf you uh, walk around and have a look at the beer it's like they're all six months old i'm not not paying good money for those so well how much do you unless, think unless they're an imperial yeah meant to
0: kind of sit how much do you think that the um number of breweries is really contributing to the challenge in the in the market we talked about a bunch of different things um, overall.
1: yeah there are uh, we did discuss that there's a lot of breweries a lot of them are very small though so a lot of them are small and regional and they don't hit the big markets that much. I think it is more the um, the breweries that had a lot of backing and the breweries that are owned by the majors and promoted as craft and artisanal. They have taken a big share of the market. So they're really what the current independent brewers have to battle against to try and get their market space.
0: So you had talked about if you were to do it all again, you would probably do a small brew pub. In somewhere around your neighborhood, if somebody were to try to,
1: yeah, let's say they were, yeah, I I wouldn't want to get involved in it.
0: So if somebody was going to do that, and let's say uh, they want to take your old tanks to kaiju, what what would you tell them? Like, what is there a pathway to profitability, and and if so, what would you recommend that they do differently?
1: I think they'd have to keep it fairly minimal. So. They'd have to just be able to produce the beer that they sell. So you keep your margins up if you sell it on site. You stay under the uh, there's an excise rebate amount, so you probably try and stay under that because once you go over that, your, your excise becomes ridiculous. But then yeah, the scalability you need to produce enough beer to be able to at least pay yourself. So yeah, I haven't done numbers on it, but you'd want to probably a 80 to 120 person pub that you could fill a few nights a week and get through 10 to 15 kegs a week. You'd probably make money doing it that way, but Yeah, I haven't I haven't run the numbers and what your ROI on that's going to be is probably not great by the time you pay for all the uh, hardware and everything. So it's kind of a again, it would be a, a retirement job slash job of passion kind of thing. So it's probably not a great career path for people.
0: I would say I have a similar issue after 10 years in the industry and doing all these podcasts. If you were to ask me to write a business plan that would make money, I'd give it 40% chance, maybe at best. <laughs> I don't know. The short answer is I don't know. How to make money. <laughs> but that's what we're trying to figure out. Yep. Well, give me, do you have like... When you look back, maybe like one proudest moment or you know, something that you're like, it kind of still warms your heart about the time you spent in the industry.
1: Uh, there's, there's lots of very, very, very enjoyable moments. I guess one, one conversation I remember having was with um, a guy who was judging at the AOBAs and I did a beer festival with him the week leading up to it. And he came up and he had, he, he got my session hour just released on tap in his bar. He came up and congratulated me. He says, congratulations, you've won a gold medal because I had your beer at the AOBAs and I've had it here. And so I was like, oh, excellent, thanks very much. He goes, yeah, it's an amazing pale ale. And I go, I didn't put it in the pale ale section. I put it in a mid-strength section. He goes, oh, my mid-strength beer tasted fairly fairly similar to a a gold medal winning pale ale, which I was very proud of. The fact that that
0: was in a small beer like
1: that, that's cool. "Mm." So I I had worked really hard on that one. And then because I actually wasn't going to the ABA awards that year because the tickets are expensive. So I got a call from the ARBA saying, oh, is anyone going? And I said, no. And they said, oh, someone probably should, (laughs) which basically means you're getting a trophy. And so I thought, excellent, I'm getting a trophy for this Paleo slash mid-strength beer. And I didn't. I got a trophy for the... Next step, and a gold medal for the session there. So, that was a good week.
0: Yeah, those are cool memories. When we wrap up, what do you want the legacy overall of Exit Brewing to be? And, and again, we don't know if you're going to come back, but let's say you don't, and we look back on the experience. What do you want the impact of your brewery to be on the Australian and or world beer scene overall?
1: I don't think we're going to have an ongoing legacy. I think we're too small and I think we'll fade into insignificance. All I can hope is that the people who did try and enjoy our beer loved them when they got them. And they've got to move forward with their beer journey and it's pointed them in a good direction.
0: I'm glad to help have it live on somewhat, at least in the podcast. And uh, I think it's what you guys did was cool. And I appreciate you sharing the story because there's a lot that we can learn, not just how to, how not to do a brewery in Australia, but uh, in the States and everywhere else as well. So I appreciate you sharing everything. And, um, is there anything that you want to mention that we didn't cover?
1: Yeah. I think if people are sitting there thinking of, um, opening a brewery i think they really need to sit down and do the numbers and work out the cost how much they're going to have to work uh where their market's going to be and what's going to differentiate themselves in the market these days and yeah, work out how they're going to sell a beer at a price point that people are going to be happy to pay it i think yeah with the market as crowded as it is it's a very tough ask i would agree maybe start looking around for another passion in life
0: yeah or just get a brewer's job and then have something else that you yeah. might, uh, do for fun yeah all right well on that note now that we know how not to start a damn brewery in Australia and here, um, I'm going to let you get back to it. And I appreciate everything that you share with us and look forward to
1: hopefully one day meeting you at a beer festival. well awesome, Thanks for having me on, buddy. You have a great day.
0: Thanks a fuckload for sticking around, guys. What well, my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity, and balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend, followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not, to start a Danbury. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a Danbury. Free play.
1: Media.